From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Though they started off rocky, Gator baseball has proven that they know how to finish by stacking up wins down the stretch and claiming the number three seed in the NCAA tournament. With the path to Omaha beginning this weekend, today we'll get to know junior catcher Mike Rivera and hear his take on how the Gators plan to return to the College World Series. But first, Florida softball was taken to the brink of elimination for the second straight week, but persevered in a three-game battle royale with Alabama to secure their eighth trip to the Women's College World Series. In our weekly roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, we began by getting Chris's take on Florida's successful fight to get back to OKC. Well, I think uh, there was some thought maybe among some people that, I mean, Alabama obviously was a, was a very good team, probably a team easily capable to have made it this far to Oklahoma City with their pitching staff they had. But, um, you know, Florida, you know, we've been saying this for a few weeks now, Adam. I mean, Florida, as long as they can trot out that one-two punch of uh, Kelly Barnhill and Delaney Gorley, it's going to be hard to beat them twice mm-hmm. uh, in any kind of double elimination situation. I mean, uh, Kelly did lose that game, the first game in the Super Region, um, basically not because she she pitched poorly, but because she threw the first base poorly. Uh, a couple errors, uh, three unearned runs, and that put the Gators in that hole. And, you know, I, I keep looking at these stats. What Florida did in the circle was obviously very, very impressive. Between Delaney, who pitched in that elimination game and was really just fantastic, which we've seen before, obviously, from her and then Kelly to come out and finish them off. And to do it without much offensive help at all, you look at these mm-hmm. statistics. Florida hit 302 during the season, Adam. They've hit 229 in the postseason, and in that super region, they hit 167. Wow. They only got 11 hits combined, and uh, Amanda Lorenz got five of them. So uh, they're going to need some offense, uh, obviously, out here against the creme de la creme from across college. But again, as long as they have the pitching, they're going to give themselves a chance. But uh, uh, we've talked about margin of error, and obviously margin of error is, is reduced when you don't score runs, and they're going to they're gonna have to back these pitchers. It was good because you saw um, it was Amanda after the clincher against Alabama said I, she was just so happy that they were able to give Kelly some run support that they weren't able to give her before. Um, that's obviously something they're, they're going to have to do here. Uh, it'll be harder to score runs here. The teams are better, but they just have to get it done. And at the same time, it's going to be hard for Florida opponents to score runs because of the uh, two-headed monster in the circle the, the opponent's going to have to face. And one part of that two-headed monster just won National Player of the Year from USA Softball. Uh, if there's an award that Kelly Barnhill hasn't won, I'm not sure what it is at this point. Yeah, I'm just you just run down the list. Um, she leads the nation in ERA at 0.36. Uh, she leads the nation in hits surrendered per seven innings. I think it's 2.74. Strikeouts per seven innings, 13.4. She had 12 shutouts. Uh, she's six in the country in strikeouts. She's 24 and three. Batters hit 117 against her. And the strikeouts, 333 compared to 34 walks. Mm. I think that was Scott Carter's high school number. <laughs> I think so. I mean, you're, doing, you're doing a piece on her, right, while you're out there? Yeah, I am going to try to do a piece. Tell us something you learned about her that you didn't know, Chris, that maybe the fans will find interesting. 
Kelly Barnhill um, was just a generational prospect out of Marietta, Georgia. And her deal is she always wanted to go to Stanford. Hmm. And Florida wasn't very much in the picture because Florida was the national champion at the time. And um, Florida kind of got a break when Stanford dismissed their coach, John Rittman, in the middle of the recruiting of Kelly Barnhill. So Florida was able to capitalize it. And I believe Jeter Barnhill, who's Kelly's dad, he was a graduate of West Point, actually. He talked to Tim Walton and said, you know, it's going to be a tough get. And Tim Walton said, if it's coming down to recruiting, I'm not losing. <laughs> However, he knew she was very smart, very into her academics. And uh, it was going to be a, a down to the wire kind of thing. But once uh, once that coach wasn't there anymore, there was no comfort level for her uh, when she went on her official visit to Stanford. And uh, obviously, Tim Walton just kind of smelled blood in the water on that. And he said, you know, he basically recruited her for five years. And to finally get her, uh, it's something that uh, he said it was the happiest he'd ever been in landing and recruit. Now, she didn't have a world beater season last year. But uh, what Tim Walton says, her confidence really went upward this season. And she went out there not not hoping she was going to pitch well, but knowing she was going to pitch well. And I tell you what, when you can throw, they say she throws 71-72, which is like 100 miles an hour in baseball. And the direction her ball goes, the breaks on three planes, here in Oklahoma City of the seven teams, and this includes two SEC teams, nobody here has faced Kelly Barnhill this year. No, so no. Uh, it's not like they have a first-person kind of scouting report on her. So um, they'll trot her out. It'll be their first look. Uh, good luck to them. But they're going to have to score runs to beat Florida. Obviously, Florida's going to have to score at least one to do something about it. But uh, it'll be kind of like a Kelly Barnhill kind of coming out party. She won badly to be here last year. Gators lost on that walk-off home run. She was going to pitch the uh, – the ensuing decisive uh, game three that same afternoon. But uh, Georgia obviously ended those hopes, and she's kind of been sitting on that and waiting for, for this moment. And she says uh, it's always been one of her goals to pitch in the College World Series, but she says just getting there wasn't the goal. She wants to go here and do something about it. So we'll see what happens. Softball gets underway against Texas A&M Thursday at noon, and then the schedule proceeds throughout the weekend, depending on whether they win or lose. Another team that's going to have kind of a weird schedule this weekend is Gator Baseball, Scott. They're hosting a regional, the number three overall seed, and as we've documented here, pretty remarkable that they finished that high considering where they started. Yeah, I mean, they went up to the SEC tournament, won two out of three, but even before then, uh, you know, you felt that they were going to be a top four or five national seed. Ends up three. Eighth time in nine years, uh, national seed with the last nine with Sully. Uh, one of his better managing jobs, I would say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now they get a chance to kind of reboot, start the postseason. They're going to have to do it without at least one key player in Ryan Larson, who you saw get kind of hit on the left side of the head up in uh, Hoover in the tournament. It hit his part of his helmet, but also got him in the head. Uh, Sullivan said he's not ready uh, yet, so we won't expect to see him uh, in this weekend's regional it uh, looks like maybe Nick Corvath, who was also hurt up there, he busted his lip, but he's fine. He'll play some in the outfield. And the good news on the injury front, Dalton Guthrie is mm -hmm. expected back. And that's a huge lift with his defense and just with him being kind of a table setter at the top of that lineup. Uh, so, again, this is a Florida team that, you know, they've had probably better teams on paper under O'Sullivan trying to get back to Omaha. They're trying to get back there for the third straight year. But this team has something about it. It's got this, uh, he calls them scrappers, uh, just fighters. Kind of matches his personality a little bit. They're they're true grinders. And uh, other than J.J. Schwartz, who, you know, really picked it up in the second half of the mm -hmm. season, 
you can't look at the lineup and say, man, that's their big guy. They, they just have a lot of guys contributing at good times, contributing different uh, parts of the game, and, and they, they got great pitching. Although the pitching was roughed up in that semifinals at SEC tournament, Brady Senior got really you know hit hard by eight runs and seven hits in one inning. They end up losing 16 nothing, uh, which is rare for this club. But now it's baseball. They come back, they regroup, and you know they'll go out with Jackson Coar on Friday night when they face Maris in the first round. A little bit of a tinker of the uh, the rotation, so they'll go with Coar and then Alex Fado on Saturday, and then come back with Brady Singer on Sunday. So we'll see how it turns out. And speaking of guys that are now healthy, someone we talked to later on in this particular podcast, Mike Rivera, a huge boost to have him back because not just what he's able to do offensively and his ability to be clutch, but really the heart and soul of that team in a lot of ways, personality-wise. Yeah, he really is. He epitomizes a lot of that the fighting spirit that we talked about. Uh, he's one of those guys, when they describe him, uh, loves being around the game. He knows the game. He studies the game. And at catcher, I've always thought – catchers are always kind of one of the smartest guys on the team usually Mm -hmm. he certainly fits that profile and getting him back in the SEC tournament you know in the first game back I think he scored their first run in that game Uh, they beat Auburn five to four he had a hit looked like he'd been playing regularly and he comes right back in and just fits right back into the lineup and and with him out they were really able to get some time for Mark Colasavari so you add him and you add Schwartz who can play catcher Revere then you go back and forth between catcher and DH and J.J. plays from first, so it's good versatility there for uh, Kevin O'Sullivan at this time of year. But with Rivera, he's the kind of guy you want on your team. Uh, and, you know, he's a junior, so we don't know if this is going to be his last ride or not. But mm-hmm. he's kind of like a little bit of Jared Davis in football, kind of yeah. one of the heartbeats of the team. I'd say him and Guthrie. In the, so they get both of those guys back at the right time. Uh, Chris, not expecting to get basketball news this week, but we did. Uh, an interesting announcement about Florida's involvement in this Phil Knight tournament that's bringing some of the best teams in the country together all to, to play in one building. Yeah, it's called the PK-80. It's the uh, it's a celebration of Phil Knight's uh, 80th birthday, um, the weekend of the Florida-Florida State football game, in fact. And uh, the pairings for that bracket, or two brackets, actually, it's a large field. They're going to bust it into two brackets. But Florida's going to play Stanford in the in the first game. And they'll play, depending on obviously outcomes or what have you, they play either Ohio State or Gonzaga. Wow. Obviously in the national championship game against North Carolina in a second game. And the third game would be either uh, on their side would be either Duke, Portland State, which would be the home team there, and Butler or Texas. So obviously some name opponents are starting to show up on Florida's 2017-2018 schedule. Uh, Just last week it was released that the SEC Big 12 Challenge will bring Baylor which was a Sweet 16 team, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. to the O'Connell Center next January 27th for that event. So there's going to be some more news trickling out. There's going to be at least another name opponent you all will recognize that will probably come out in the next week or so relative to the Orange Bowl Classic, which they play in Sunrise every year. Um, but uh, the good thing about the schedule this year is they're going to be home games. Obviously, last year with the O-Dome under renovation, they played sure. 11 games uh, bouncing around to, I believe it was eight different cities. Uh, seven, I think, in the state of Florida. But they'll have, it, they obviously, for their non-conference schedule, they will be able to play in their own arena. Interesting side like that, the Gators had a home-and-home schedule with Michigan State, if you recall, two years ago. Uh, they went, Mike White's first season, they went up to Michigan State and played in the Breslin Center there. And that was supposed to be a return trip this year, but Florida didn't want to play it if they didn't have the O-Dome. 
Next year, a Big Ten schedule is going to start, uh, they think, like a week early. So Michigan State asked if they, sh- if they could push that. So that game is being pushed to 2018-2019. So the Spartans won't be coming in this year. But uh, the remaining of the non-conference schedule will be coming out down the line. But it starts right now. It's got Stanford Thursday, which is Thanksgiving night, out in Portland, Oregon. And I believe it's actually two venues, Adam, they're going to play there. They're going to play in the place where the Trailblazers play. And I think there's an actually an adjacent arena that they'll play uh, other games in. But it's a it's quite an affair. It's a hell of a field. I believe North Carolina is on the other side of the field. I think Syracuse is off the top of my head. But a uh, nice schedule for the Gators. And, uh, you know, obviously that's warranted. And they, they become an attractive foe also. We always say, what about the attractive teams going to be on the schedule? Well, if you're Stanford, now you have Florida on your schedule. That looks pretty good also. For our weekly football fix, Scott, the SEC spring meeting is going on right now, which means a chance for Jim McElwain and his fellow coaches to uh, expose their thoughts on a few topics and what specifically jumped out this week. Yeah, what it is, uh, you know, the hot topic over in Destin this week uh, for the coaches, it's really been a few things. I mean, Obviously, new NCAA legislation has, you know, altered the uh, recruiting calendar some. So, you know, that's getting a lot of discussion, especially that early signing date. You know, now players can sign in December or wait until February on National Signing Day. Uh, you know, depending on which coach stepped to the podium yesterday, you, you kind of heard all kinds of opinions. Uh, Nick Saban was probably the most outspoken against it basically saying that it has a negative impact on high school football and high school programs because now some of that stuff, that date happens in some of their postseasons around the country. How is it helping the student athlete, that kind of discussion? It really, I think what he was talking about opens up more discussion because, you know, when it was first presented, I mean, there's nothing new here with this early signing day. It's been a topic of conversation for a while. It's just Mm -hmm. finally enacted. Jim McElwain's take is he expects it to be, a busy first couple of years and you're going to see a lot of buyers or more so on both sides, meaning that, you know, there's going to be a lot of kids out there who want to sign in December and uh, they call up the school and the school says, ah, you know what? We might not be ready for you. We're still looking at other people, but vice versa, there's going to be some schools who call these kids. Hey, you ready? We want you to go ahead in mm-hmm. December. So then you're going to find out how really committed they are. Right. So it's going to be a, a really a back and forth there early. Uh, we'll see how it settles down maybe in years to come. But either way, I expect, you know, we'll get a taste of how it falls this year. It's probably going to be revisited. And the other big topic in relation to Florida football is the grad transfer rule. Uh, you know, the SEC is the only conference in the country that has this rule. Basically what it is is let's say you take a grad transfer uh, for his fifth year of eligibility. If that grad transfer does not remain academically eligible toward his degree, and, you know, toward the bowl game, mm-hmm. right now you're prohibited from signing another one of those players for three years. So it's the only rule. It's kind of – it was even a r- quiet rule implemented. I mean, mm-hmm. you look didn't at the – get a lot ga- of fanfare. Yeah, it didn't get a lot of fanfare. And, it, you know, obviously uh, Florida's situation with maybe a, a quarterback uh, coming in that's getting a lot of attention from the fans. The coaches up there are basically saying, why do we have a rule that no other conferences have? How is that helping us? Uh, the SEC Commissioner Craig Sankey spoke with some reporters last night and basically said it's being discussed, and his proposal at this point is maybe lifting it from a three-year ban to a one-year ban. So we're going we're gonna to find out some way uh, maybe later in the week or uh, soon how that shakes out, but it does look like that rule is going to be altered in some regard. And, uh, you know, so really those are the big topics. I mean, there was really not much player news or anything of that nature. This is 
the game is just being evaluated. A lot of coaches were talking about how football is portrayed so negatively right now. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's from the concussions, uh, just in terms of, uh, you know, there's always off the field issues that now more than ever get spotlighted. So, you know, there was some of that talk. And then specifically the one topic that came up for McElwain in regards to the Gators, obviously centered on Antonio Callaway. Orlando Sentinel caught up with him, and he didn't give any definitive answer about what his status is for the opener, if there's any suspension. He said that they had talked with Callaway about his off-the-field decision-making even prior to his latest issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that means, we'll find out down the road. But other than those topics, I mean, it was pretty much a more uh, administrative-level issues, which kind of put some fans to sleep, and you know. <laughs> But it's an important decision-making time for those uh, SEC officials over there. I feel like we haven't talked about Tim Tebow in a while, and his statue is right outside where we're talking. So, uh, Scott, Tim Tebow has the potential to be an all-star on the baseball field. Explain to us how that's the case. Well, he is on the uh, all-star ballot for the South Atlantic League all-star uh, game, which is coming up. He's on the ballot for the Southern Division. So who would have expected that Tim Tebow could be the starting left fielder for the the Southern team in the uh, upcoming South Atlantic League All-Star game. Uh, you know, it's, he's hitting, what, 215, three home runs, 15 RBIs. Not exactly lighting it up, but he's had his moments. But, you know, All-Star games are about fans, what sure. they want to see. Uh, so I wrote a little blog this morning with the ballot. I posted on the site. So you're I, driving people. You're well, I guarantee you it's here. helped, but it's been out there in other, in other places too. <laughs> and I, I, I got a good – suspicion that Tebow is going to become the first Heisman Trophy winner to ever start in left field for the South team in the South Atlantic League All-Star game. And I don't know, Chris, what your thoughts on it have. I think that's a pretty safe bet right now. Well, I mean, if it has to do with fans and social media and voting online and everything, I mean, it's a. I would think it's a done deal. And you can see on social media, Scott, some people getting upset about that because I think, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he have the lowest batting average of anyone on his in the starting lineup, or is it anyone on the roster? Uh, I current? think in the regulars in the Columbia's lineup, he is, I think, the lowest. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I was reading an interesting article the other day, uh, like since he's joined the minor leagues, obviously, with the uh, Columbia Fireflies, the attendance at every place that they go to is up significantly. Like it's ninety two percent, ninety two percent up in the stops. Mm-hmm. You know, you combine all the other teams in the league, and uh, I mean that just shows you the impact and how popular he is. And you know, let's face it, we we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, we're ever going to see him in the major leagues? Uh, very likely not. You know, unless it's a kind of a promotion deal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, hey man, more power to him. I mean, <laughs> he's living his what? dream. And wherever the side of that All Star game is, why don't we why don't we call up uh, the organizers of that All Star game and ask them if they'd want Tim Tebow at their game? See what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think I just saw a picture of them on the internet. They're putting up extra bleachers right now. Mm. Right. <laughs> Final thing: while most of our listeners know you guys as accomplished podcast personalities, you are first and foremost sports writers, and we lost one of the great sports writers of all time in Frank DeFord this week. So I'm curious from both of you guys, your favorite sports writer of all time, the most revered person who would be on your Mount Rushmore in that department? Well, Frank DeFord would certainly be on mine, Adam. The reason he's getting so much publicity with this is because he did kind of change the genre. He took the magazine style to kind of a different level, raised the bar some, and Mm -hmm. the guy had an amazing career. Just like before him, you know, you got Jim Murray's, who was known for his humor, Red Smith for, for his eloquent style. And then if you think about the original sports writer who probably made it what it is or what it became, 
Grantland Rice just for historical relevance. He's not going to match up as a rider with any of those other three I just mm-hmm. mentioned, but those would be my four. If you were asking me, I mean, obviously Jim Murray is somebody, you could just continually read that guy. I mean, he was a phenomenal columnist and always liked S.L. Price. Mm-hmm. And I always like Gary Smith. Both those guys made the back of the book, uh, Sports Illustrated, a uh, must reading when it came to that stuff. And you know what? I read a lot of those back of the book things by Rick Riley that were really, yeah. really good. When he was in his heyday and writing some of that golf stuff, he was absolutely phenomenal. So when I thought I was a, a, a I don't know, an impressionable writer trying to get into it, those were some of the guys that I would definitely consider uh, must reads at the time. Well, I think two must read guys right now are Chris Harry. And Scott Carter. Make <laughs> oh sure boy. to check out FloridaGators.com this weekend because Chris has got everything covered from Oklahoma City. Scott has got the NCAA Baseball Regional on lockdown. And we look forward to talking about all of that next week with you guys. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Mike Rivera has often been called the heartbeat of the Gator baseball team over the last three years. The Tampa Bay native is also the definition of a hard worker who's had to fight for everything he's received, both on and off the field. In a discussion covering his life as a catcher, personal scares in his family, and more, we begin by finding out where his journey started. First off, I grew up in uh, a small city, Snow Spark by St. Pete, mm-hmm. and I grew up in that area. I was born there. I played uh, pony ball there. Um, I did. That's where I learned pretty much how to play baseball. And um, my parents are both hardworking people. They're blue collar, especially my dad. He's a plumber and construction worker. So I've been raised around that, and uh, I've seen what hard work is kind of like in the real world and stuff like that. My mom, she uh, she used to work, but uh, she ended up having cancer about four years ago. But uh, she's now fine, and uh, she had her transplant actually. The day before I went to Omaha last year. Mm. So I had no sleep. And uh, while we were at the open ceremony, she was finally on her way to uh, starting a 14-hour surgery. So. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, before we get back to that, I'm curious when you first started playing baseball and, and what drew you to the sport? I think I started playing baseball around like four or five. I started playing t-ball and stuff like that. And my dad definitely sent – he's pretty much the reason why I started playing baseball. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he always plays softball and stuff like that, and he still continues to do that. So mm-hmm. I grew up around baseball. I had cousins who played baseball and stuff like that. And Plus, my dad's Puerto Rican. In Puerto Rico, that's a big deal mm-hmm. playing baseball. So I think it's just in my blood. Did you play other sports growing up, and when did you really focus in on, on baseball? Um, I played a little bit of basketball, too. Um, I was obviously like – I grew – my body grew too early, so I was always <laughs> taller than everyone and stuff like that, so – I was a center and stuff like that when I was like 12. I played from like 8 to 12, a little bit of basketball. Played some soccer. I didn't like it too much. <laughs> How come? Uh, I think it was just because the fact that we had to run so much. <laughs> and I was kind of a heavier, taller kid. So Right. So I think, But baseball was definitely my go-to. I love baseball, and I continue to love it. There's a lot of positions you can play on the field that are a lot easier than being a catcher. So what drew you to being a catcher, and, and when did that stick? Um, that's kind of weird because I didn't catch much like growing up. Really? I, obviously, I played mostly shortstop and pitched a little bit. I had a pretty good arm, so I always always pitched a lot. But um, I think as I got older, my body started. Everyone was starting to just pass me, and I, <laughs> I stayed shorter. And um, I had a coach in high school, Craig Faulkner, you know, from Venice, and he pretty much told me he's like, "Hey, you gonna be a shorter, stockier guy and stuff like that." I think you start catching. I was like, nah, I don't want to catch. I'm not into that. It's too much. The science says sure. and communicating and 
stuff like that. But I think, uh, yeah, I think catching chose me. It's kind of weird. Like, I started catching, and I fell in love with it. At first, I, I wasn't too happy about it. I started feeling my body differently, and even when I hit and stuff like that. But I knew it was hard work, and I knew it would pay off, so I continued doing it. My dad caught, too, mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico and stuff like that. So he had a little bit of background to help me, too. When you look at that position, what are the most rewarding parts of playing that position, and what are the most challenging parts of it? I think the most rewarding is just uh, helping your pitcher get through long innings and stuff like that and see how far I can take him throughout the game. Like uh, One thing I do look to a lot is how a catcher can control his pitcher and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I think sometimes that's just overlooked by the hating and – throwing and stuff like that but if you have like uh, a good pace for your pitcher and a good like communication with them it just makes everything better and I, I think that I enjoy that the most really like I'm fine with going over for as long as you win or as long as my pitcher gets like a shutout or stuff like that to hitter stuff like that so I enjoy that a lot so but I think the most challenging part of catching would be my body mm-hmm. you get beat up a lot and stuff like that but it's rewarding though once you get it throughout the day it's just rewarding that you did it Nine innings behind the plate. Has it gotten to the point where you take more pride in maybe throwing a runner out from second than getting a hit in your own at bat? Yeah, 100%. I think that started happening in high school. Because hmm. I, had, I had my high school coach, Craig, say, always, always said, you can always catch it, stuff like that. Lars is the same thing, too, our catcher coach. Mm-hmm. I thank him for everything because he's unbelievable. And I never really tell him that. but <laughs> He can listen to this and he can hear it. Yeah, he's one of the best. <laughs> he, he, by far, I think he's the best catching coach I've ever had. And he pretty much taught me the really detailed things. But um, I like I rather throw someone out or like I said before catch a shot out mm-hmm. than I don't know hit a home run and one for four or two for four because I don't know it's just something I know defensively it's more important that's my job is sure. defense before offense so you developed as a catcher in high school and then it came mm-hmm. time to look at colleges and see where your career was going next so how did Florida come in the mix and what was Sully's pitch to get you to come play here um that started off it was actually Craig who saw me my freshman year. And I hit a home run or something, and I was catching. Like I just said, I started catching. Mm-hmm. And he's like, how old are you? And I was like, 15. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me because I had some chin hair on me. And he looked at me he's like, what, you're 15? And I was like, yeah. And um, he kind of like put my name on the radar and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And as I got older, I got better too catching. I started blocking a little bit better, and, and I started communicating more. And that's something some younger kids don't even worry about, which sure. is something they need to look, look at more into because – Nowadays, you got guys you just worry about how hard you throw the second, mm-hmm. pop times, all that stuff. In reality, it's not just all about that. But um, beginning of my junior year, uh, Sully saw me in the summer, and I, I was starting to get recruited by a bunch of other teams, and uh, I always wanted to come to Florida. And one thing I loved about Sully, he was real with me, and um, he never guaranteed, oh, hey, you're going to catch. You're going to be my three-year guy, and that's it. And he never said that, and other schools would say, oh, yeah, you're going to catch here three years, and then you get drafted here and there. I'm like, Sully never said that. So I, I like that too because I, I want to earn what I get. So that's something I always told myself, work for what I get. And you came in at a time when, I mean, Florida had had a lot of really good players that are just mm-hmm. leaving. And even as a catcher, Mike Zanino, top five draft pick. So when you came in and your class came in, how much pressure was there to live up to that standard that had been just set? Oh, I think for me, like I was still learning and I was still developing as a player. So that's one thing I kind of like, thought about more importantly than just thinking of comparing myself to someone else like mm-hmm. that's that had great catchers like Mike Zunino, Gushu, stuff like that and I've always seen them on TV and I always thought I can compete with them and um I didn't really put too much pressure on myself like that I just worried about taking it each day and trying to get better and uh, learn from other guys even JJ and Mark mm-hmm. too so and also they can learn from me so you've really developed a reputation since you've been here for being a clutch guy 
maybe not putting up huge numbers all the time, but those big clutch hits when the team needs them. Where do you think that comes from? Is that something about your personality, about your work ethic that's allowed you to be such a clutch performer? Uh, I think it has to do with my work ethic and my mentality. Where I grew up, too, also, I think it helps, too. I had a bunch of coaches when I was younger, and they always talked about the guys that hit in pressure situations, the guys that are most important. And I always thought about that, kept it in my head mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I was lucky enough, too, because I've had situations in the past where I didn't succeed always. So I don't know. I just feel like I, I kind of like stay within myself more, mm -hmm. like especially if I'm leading off an inning. I'm trying to do some damage, and it's like, nah, it's not what you should be doing. Right. Just trying to get on right. base, put a good swing on it. That's it. But I think, um, yeah, it's definitely where I grew up from in my work, work ethic for sure. Off the field, you've gone through a lot, and certainly I'm sure that's given you perspective on the field. But can you take us through a couple years ago when you first found out about your mom and, and what was going on at that time in your life? Um, it was hard for me, too. Um, it was really hard when I found out. I couldn't believe it because – you think of like so many bad people that live on for so long, mm -hmm. and I always told myself why her and stuff like that. But I always, my mom always said there's always a reason why for everything. So, but um, when I found that out was my junior year of high school, and I was devastated. And that was probably like my best year of my life too, playing wise. I I got to play for the United States or USA team, mm -hmm. 18U, and we won gold and we won a state championship, and everything was going well. And when I found that out, it just brought me back down. But um. She always, she, I always try to stay positive around her, and I think I helped a lot. But one thing that I did, uh, I do remember, and it was hard for me, was having to leave to mm -hmm. come to Florida sure. and then not being able to, you know, see her and stuff like that. And my little sister had to go through, you know, taking care of my dad too. And um, I just feel like I, I wish I could have helped more, but I knew she was in good hands too, so it kind of made me a little feel better. So how did you manage that? I mean, you're up here playing, you're going to school, and, and you're trying to build your career, but that's going on back home. So mm -hmm. how did you cope with it? How did you continue doing what you're doing here while all of that was going on at the same time? I think, first off, I was blessed with being around great people like Sully, Lars, and Brad, and Craig, and stuff like that. And it just made me comfortable to come to the field. And I woke up every morning wanting to call my mom or at night, call her just to make sure she's okay and stuff like that. And it was hard, but... I know it would pay off at the end, and I had great, like I said before, I had great people around me, and they helped me a lot, and they kind of took my mind off of that, especially when I got to the field. So it was like kind of like my medicine, mm -hmm. playing and practicing and stuff like that. Last year, you're getting ready to go to the College World Series, right. and, and you're waiting on this, this liver transplant to come through mm -hmm. for your mom, and it happens, was it the, the same day you were about to leave for Omaha? Uh, yeah, the day, well, my dad called me, and I was packing, mm -hmm. and we were leaving that morning or the next morning. And um, my dad was like, hey, I'm going to come up there. And he told me about the liver transplant. I was in shock. So I ended up sleeping at a hotel with my mom and my dad and stuff like that and my sister. Mm -hmm. And uh, we woke up early. And they had her there like eight to nine hours before the surgery even happened. Wow. So then I had to fly. And um, I remember this because I probably will never forget this moment. It was like the open ceremony. And I'm watching fireworks. And at, at times, like, I wanted to cry. Cause like I don't really show too much emotions like that, but like, I was like ready to just tear up. Cause like I was seeing all these fireworks and like our team was like all happy and stuff like that, and I was happy too because we made it, it was a good accomplishment too mm -hmm. to make it to Omaha. And uh, I remember just thinking about like what if this happens, what if that happens, and it was just it was hard for me. So what did it mean for all that to come together that way? I mean, you're at the ultimate stage, you're in Omaha, where every college baseball player wants to be, and then you get this great news simultaneously. So did it? maybe take some of the weight off your shoulders and allow you just to, to focus more on the game? Uh, I think that's happened now, now that time has gone by. Mm -hmm. But during the surgery time, I think it 
puts more pressure on me, I think, honestly, because all I think about was her and, like, all my buddies would go walk around Omaha and hang out, and I was just in my room the whole time just pretty much praying to God that everything mm -hmm. goes well. And the next day she ended up calling me, or well, my dad called me, and then she put my mom on the phone, and she was, she had a raspy voice because, like, you know, tubes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, but she was talking, and I was, like, in shock, and I started crying, and I couldn't believe it. I'm sure on a on a game to game basis, every pitch, every out, it seems like the biggest thing in the world. When you go through something like this in your life, does it give you a different perspective on the game in terms of what you do on a day to day basis when you know what could ultimately happen off the field? Yeah, it just humbles you kind of. You just don't take things for granted. Like the fact that Brad's throwing BP to you or that you're simply just stretching in the outfield. Some people take that for granted. Like, they don't understand how huge it is. Not everyone gets to do that or mm -hmm. play here at the University of Florida. So it just made me so much more humble and stuff like that. Yeah, like I said before, I've been surrounded by great people, and they've helped me throughout a lot of this. So, so it would be nice if things just were easy for you after that, but then you mm -hmm. have your own adversity on the field, and you get hurt and you break your hand, which for a catcher yeah. is very challenging. So can you talk about what it was like for you going through this month-plus where mm -hmm. you couldn't play in, in a critical time for your team? Um, it was hard for me. Like I remember, I was in tears too again because I don't know, it's just tough. I wanted to play, and that's all I ever wanted to do is play with my teammates and compete. And um, it's been probably the, one of the most fun seasons I've had. We've had great teammates, and it was hard for me. I don't know. I just had to go through it, and mm -hmm. I, like I said before, God has reasons why, and I think He chose me because you know I can handle it. So that's what I always said. It's all gonna work out at the end. The draft is just a few weeks away, and obviously it comes a really strange time because it's right in the thick of the NCAA tournament and the pursuit of Omaha. How do you and your teammates, especially guys your age, how do you handle that hanging over your heads while you're simultaneously trying to go win a national championship? I think I, I learned from the older guys, the guys that got drafted before. And like my mm -hmm. freshman year, I saw how they acted, and, and my sophomore year too, how they acted, and they acted real professional about it, and they never really talked about it, and... They didn't bring that up before the team, so I kind of just keep that in perspective. I kind of keep it in the back of my mind, but it's mm -hmm. something I really think about too much. I can't really control what's going to happen. Sure. So if I go late round, early round, I, does, I don't know. At the end of the day, I just want my ticket. So I'm not really too worried about it. I just want to compete, and i got bigger things to do with this team. During your time here, which teammate do you feel like has had the biggest influence on you and why? Ooh, I got a couple. Um, it can be a couple. It can be as many guys as you feel like have, uh, have been impactful. I think my freshman year, being the new guy and stuff like that, I had Bader as my locker buddy. I remember seeing him on TV, superstar and all that. <laughs> and, uh, but he, he was unbelievable with me, and uh, I learned a lot from him, especially hitting him mentality-wise. And he was a hard hit at times, but I learned a lot from him, and he was always on me too. He's like, hey, why are you doing this? Like, go do this, or blah, blah, blah stuff like that. And um, Bader is definitely one of them. Uh, I think another one was Bobby Pointer. He's kind of like tough on us and stuff like that. He kind of said some stuff to the catchers. I was, we were freshmen, but mm -hmm. I knew it would help him out if I do it what he wanted. And uh, we communicated well at the end, and we did good things. And I respect him a lot. And uh, I think Nelson Maldonado and Guthrie and Fajardo. And, but Nelson's my, my roommate, too. And that's one guy I think I've been trying to help him, trying to put my input in his head sometimes about what he needs to do and all that. Because at the end of the day, he's going to be a leader pretty soon. Mm -hmm. So... I think he needs to be ready for that. So on the flip side of that, I guess that might be the answer, but which players do you think you've had the biggest impact on? I think Fido. Since the beginning, since day one, I've been really catching him a lot. Mm -hmm. He's been the guy I caught the most. And uh, we work really well together, and um, I understand what he needs in certain situations and stuff like that. Um, like I said, Nelson, 
I've been trying to help him out, get him prepared as well. And he's been doing a great job because uh, I remember his freshman year, he'd be a little moody at times. <laughs> so I told him you can't be moody anymore because now people look up to you. Right. So you have to be level-headed at all times. Um, I think those two, Dalton, I've known Dalton since I was like 12. So mm-hmm. You guys played together, right, multiple mm-hmm. levels. Right, we've had high school and trial ball and AAU ball. So I know him re- really well. Are there any players that you look at and you maybe model your game after or, or guys who you look up to? Well, I would say Pudge, but Pudge was kind of – I saw him later years, mm-hmm. so I really didn't get to see him too much in his prime. But I think Yadier Molina, that's that guy I try to look after the most because um, just the way he controls pitches and he puts defense before offense. And you can tell he won't put up crazy numbers offensively or anything, but mm-hmm. the way he, he's always in the playoffs, finds a way even with – her bullpens and their aces are down, Wayne Wright. Sure. I see all of that, and I see the way he carries himself, and that's kind of someone I would like to be. But if anything, I'd be my own self, mm-hmm. just a little similarities. When you have free time away from baseball, what are some things that you enjoy doing? Um, I fish a lot. Uh, a lot of guys on here fish, I feel like. Yeah, well, I, I fish because like, I live in Venice now. Okay. So <laughs> I literally it's like an island. So mm-hmm. I, I go saltwater fishing, and there are times I go freshwater Mm. Um, especially my girlfriend's brother, we fish all the time. So um, I like fishing, lift weights on my own, stuff like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Hang out with my family. That's the most important. What's the, the biggest thing you've ever caught? What's your, your prized catch? <sighs> I caught some kingfish last summer with my dad. Um, when I came back from USA, mm-hmm. we went on a charter and stuff like that. And we went with his buddies, too. And kingfish. He likes to go flats, too. He'd rather go catch, like, grouper a uh, little grouper and stuff like that and redfish at times snooks depending on the snook light we have to cheat and use a snook light <laughs> but um honestly i like fresh water i don't know why i just like it I, it's a little easier for me i don't think what got you into because i think you talked about catching as being you're, you're kind of stationary you didn't like soccer it's too much running and fishing is mm-hmm. obviously very stationary yeah. it takes a lot of patience it seems like everything you do requires a lot of patience. Is mm-hmm. that is there a common thread between those things? Oh, I've never really, I never thought of it like that. Honestly, <laughs> now that I think about it, there's a lot of patience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's something I enjoy relaxing because you know mm-hmm. when you're catching and all that, you're always moving and traveling and during the season stuff sure. like that. And sometimes you just, need, you just need a break and go fish and take your mind off baseball for a little bit. And then you miss it and then you want to play right. again. So, do you have any fishing horror stories? Anything? gone wrong when you've been out fishing uh we've had uh was it fwc the uh, florida wildlife whatever the cops whatever mm-hmm. and we used me and uh cooper hammett from miami we go fishing and uh like i said the snook snooker like really like a lot of laws and stuff on it so this guy was in the bushes like staring at us <laughs> but like my, my buddy cooper saw him i was like yo there's someone in the bushes and i was like what <laughs> and i remember looking over and i could see this guy with like binoculars yeah, the binoculars yeah and like i don't know if you realize but there was like a little flash going on him so like i could see him <laughs> and he thought we were doing like illegal stuff with the snook and i was like no <laughs> but um that's pretty much the scariest i got scared for a second i was like what do you mean there's someone looking at me right like right. this is like one o'clock in the morning and we're still fishing <laughs> so it could have been a lot worse than just the the fishing cops exactly so it's <laughs> like geez these people are nuts but um i don't really have too much there's been some gators at times, but it's nothing like what do, what do you do when that happens? Just walk away. Walk away? Yeah, I don't mess with those. <laughs> no. <laughs> do you walk away slowly? Have you have you tried zigzagging, or do you just slowly – have they ever bothered you? Or they no, like, they'll come up from, like, 25 feet or mm-hmm. whatever way, and, like, I can see their head, and I'm like, yeah, right. So I 
reel it in. I'm like, grab myself and get out of here. Just try to find a new spot. Right. Because I don't know. You are a gator, but you do not mess no, with gators. No, no, not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> so. Final couple things for you. You guys have been in the College World Series the last two years. What's it like competing on that stage in Omaha, and how much does it drive you, especially now, trying to get back there? I think the competitive side of it is unbelievable. Like, it's just, like, a different thing. I don't know. It's hard to explain because, like, my freshman year, I remember, like, people saying, oh, trolling used to be so different. I was like, oh, whatever. It's the same game. <laughs> and um, you always got to keep the mentality like that, but you just feel so much different. And um, I don't know. It's awesome. It's just awesome. You just go numb of everything. You don't think about anything other than winning, mm-hmm. which is like kind of like playing wiffle ball. You just think about winning, winning, winning. You don't care about how many hits you get, um, how many guys you throw out, none of that. You just think about winning and surviving each day. And I like, I like that style of play. So um, I enjoy it a lot. We talked to Ryan Larson a few weeks ago, and, and he said that that's something that gets talked about all the time. And that was even in April. So mm-hmm. now that you're into June – how much is that part of the conversation in the locker room and, and amongst your teammates? I think we all understand that. We all want to go there. But um, this team's done a really good job of not looking ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, we understand that it, it takes five more games, and, and we have a game on Friday. So it's just like we keep it step to step at a time. So I think that's a good thing. You just don't look ahead of your opponents and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But we know we're there. We're close, but we know we have five more games left. So we have to finish that. To get there, to reach that ultimate stage, what's it going to take? Because this team has obviously done a 180 from earlier in the year. People mm-hmm. thought you guys wouldn't even host a regional, and now you're number three national seed. So what are going to be the keys to making that run to Omaha? I think just staying consistent, just doing what we've been doing this whole time. Like, don't even try to worry about doing too much. Like, some guys might try to do too much. Like, just keep doing what we're doing. Just worry about winning. And that's mm-hmm. what I think if we just worry about that, then we should be good. Well, we wish you a lot of luck, and thank you again for spending some time with us. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Watch softball at the World Series and baseball and regionals all weekend long on the ESPN family of networks. Keep track of their progress on FloridaGators.com, and make sure to join us next week as we review it all. Also, we've got some exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks with Jim McElwain and Steve Spurrier. So don't forget to check us out every Thursday. Until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the ballpark.